We're going to start off with the most important question. Would you mind sharing your journey and how you came to your faith in Christ? Sure. Uh, it starts probably going all the way back to when I was a kid. Um, you know, our parents raised us in the Catholic Church. We went to church uh, randomly, I would say. It seemed important to them. As a kid, I didn't care one bit about it. Um, to, I, as a kid, going to Catholic Church, it just seemed like very, um, I don't know how to say this, ritualistic and and. I didn't have any need for what that offered in my life. I didn't feel at the time. So growing up, just didn't really care for church. Anytime we went, I fought it. I was like, do I have to go? Mm. Um, That kind of stuff. And then got into freshman year of high school. A cute girl invited me to her youth group. This cute girl became my wife, so it's all, you know. But she invited me to her youth group. I went to her youth group, and that was the first time I'd ever seen anybody worshiping the Lord kind of with abandon. Like it was, these are people I knew, and they had some passion for, for the Lord, and I've, I'd never seen that. And so it was brand new to me. It really just got my wheels turning about what do they know that I don't know? What do they have that I don't have? How is this real for them when it's been so seemed ritualistic and boring to me? Like what what is different? And so I really started digging in, listening. I'd go back every week. I started listening. I got a Bible. I started reading it. Just started learning. So, um, yeah, from that one invitation from a cute girl, I ended up meeting the Lord in my bedroom, like in my bedroom one night, uh, just reading the Bible and. Got down on my knees, but some of that I remember it and just asked the Lord into my heart and, and to be the Lord of my life. And ever since then, I've been following Him. So, yeah, that's kind of the origin story. Do you know how many people now have told me that it started with, with a, a woman? Girl? Oh, I know. I hear that too all the time. <laughs> isn't it? It's crazy. I mean, it almost is kind of by design, though, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I've come to think that after hearing so many people say the same thing. I would say it's because we. Men or males just never grow up. Yeah. Unless we have a woman who helps us grow. That's right. Yeah. We need it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we laugh at the stupidest things. And yeah. If it were to us, we'd just be just doing basic things every day. Right. And not thinking beyond that. Right. Yeah. But then we have the the other half gone nudging us. Yeah. All right. Time to grow up. Right. <laughs> I, like, I like that. Yeah. Uh, where was this? Where'd you grow up? Blue Springs, Missouri. Oh, so yeah. Just east of Kansas City. Oh, yeah. Uh, so now you guys go to church all the time. What church you guys go to? So we go to Abundant Life. Mm -hmm. Um, they have a campus in Lee Summit Mm -hmm. and we're attending the one in Blue Springs. We live in a, we grew up in Blue Springs. We live one town over in Grain Valley. So Blue Springs is very close and we still have family in the area. So that's where we go. Um, it's a funny story, kind of tie in church and, and, uh, kind of, my faith story, my wife and I met initially, the very first time we met was at Hall McCarter Middle School in Blue Springs. And several years later, that's where we, for 10 years, we attended a church that met at Hall McCarter Middle School in Blue Springs together. So that was kind of neat that wow. our, the place where kind of we initially met was ended up being our church home for a long time. So only God weaves those kind of fun little stories into our 
lives. And I think it's fun to look back and see that. So, yeah. So many of those, yeah. so many of those. So then you guys have been together for how long now? Oh, why'd you ask me that? I, <laughs> Not to put you on the uh, spot on record. <laughs> I mean, we've been married 14 years and yeah. uh, we dated for eight years before that. So 22 years. Yeah. Longer. <sighs> I mean, more than half my life. Right. Wow. So is it now where you guys basically know what the other person's thinking and um, sometimes, but not always. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Isn't that funny? You can be with somebody that long uh-huh. and you still are getting to know them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's very true. But I will say she always, uh, you know, maybe it's cause I just repeat the same jokes over and over again. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll say something. She'll be like, I knew you were going to say that. You know, it's funny. Like you're not it's, original. It's actually, yeah, yeah. Exa- it's not funny. It's, it's just the truth. Um, my wife doesn't think I'm funny at all. Yeah. That's right. Other people do sometimes, but for some reason, Uh, I mean, she just looks at me like, and my daughter laughs, but then my wife is just like, "Mm," doesn't even respond. (laughs) I know it. As (laughs) someone who likes to enjoy life and, and, and it, it, I get joy out of other people responding, laughing and stuff and having fun. Well, (laughs) it is one of my greatest joys when I can get my wife to laugh. Right. It doesn't happen often. And so that's why I think I love it so much is because it's so rare. So, yes. Yeah. And it almost becomes our life um, per, uh, mission. Yes. Is yeah. trying to get a reaction out of the wife. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it feels that way sometimes. Yeah. So now let's get down to business. What does Brown Industry Industrial Part Service do? Yeah. So we deliver, we source and deliver parts for industrial plants. Hmm. So there's a lot of these plants are large enough that they have an entire maintenance operation inside of them to maintain the plants. And so they have people in charge of purchasing. Sometimes they'll have um, engineers who are, you know, piecing together. Maybe some big machine went down and this engineer's got to go figure out, you know, what part caused it. Can they jerry rig something together to make it continue to run? Because every minute that their machines go down, I mean, that's lost dollars for these plants. And uh, so we serve these plants. Basically, we get them whatever they need when they need it. And we try to just pride ourselves on service, 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 and being extremely reliable. The problem in these organizations is they work with a lot of vendors who are just not reliable. And they're Mm. used to that. That's that's the norm for these people is to deal with people who are not reliable, who don't do what they say they're going to do. so that's the norm? That's the norm for a lot of these people. So that's kind of who we're competing against. Um, and so we just take the approach that we're here to serve people. I mean, that's that's why business exists, to serve. And so we just take that all the way and say, um, we want to be extremely reliable in serving you well. And so that means we're open and honest with communicating. We're open and honest on the front end with customers, vendors, all along the value chain because we want to be a good partner not only to customers but to vendors and to uh, communities and everybody else that we interact with. So that, but but yes, we serve mostly these in large industrial plants with maintenance operations. So when you say reliable, what would you what would you attribute that to? What would be one action that you guys are focusing on so then your customer is saying they are reliable. 
Yeah, so our responses to mm. incoming requests. I think that's one big thing where these folks, I mean, again, they're in a, a, a position where their job is to get the machines running or to make sure that the plant is running mm-hmm. optimally. And so if they reach out to us with a request, that's our priority is to take care of that request and at least respond to them and let them know, hey, we're working on this. Uh, we expect to have a quote to you here soon or give them an idea of what to expect because they have to plan around that. That Not only, you know, th- this machine being down, now they may have five guys that work on that machine or off of that machine. And so they may have to replan work for those guys for a whole day, two days. They have to know, like, when is that machine going to be back up again? Mm-hmm. And that sometimes depends on us getting back to them. And so we try to be really responsive and honest in our communications about when we can expect things to come or what, whatever the case may be. But we're trying to just do what we say we're going to do all the time. And it's so silly. It sounds so basic, but there's so many businesses that don't do that. Oh my goodness. I mean, I could talk about that for hours, but it seems that just responding quickly, whether it be, I mean, even if it's just, Hey, I got your message. We're on it. Right. It seems that that is missing with a lot of businesses as well. Yeah. And I think even me included, I think sometimes we get wrapped up into forming the perfect message that we don't respond immediately. Yeah. So we wait, wait forever. And then five days goes by, which reminds me, I didn't respond to an email that I was supposed to yeah. this morning. <laughs> but if it takes you less than two minutes, right, it's the getting thing, getting things done mentality of if it takes two minutes or less, just respond. Right. Hey, I got your message. We're right. on it. I'll get back to you as soon as right. I can. Yeah. And what I love about this particular business is I don't come from a blue collar background, but everybody that works in this business is very blue collar. And so it's funny because they don't think about or care about crafting the perfect email response. (laughs) Yes. It's just simple. I mean, for them, it's like, let's just respond. And it's not hard. It's we're on this, you know, or simple stuff or got it. We're working on this. It's not they don't think too hard about what what to say, you know. Yeah. So speaking of backgrounds, what did your uh, what does your dad do or what did he do? My dad is a um, he. He's been in different roles. He worked for AT and T growing up, so he kind of had the. I think he worked as a manager in the call center, so just kind of a corporate job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and man, he was very like focused on family. Work was a secondary thing. Family was very important to him, and so he would wow. he would make sure to be at everything that you know we had going on. And um, so he yeah he worked at. AT&T grown up, and then uh, probably when I was about in, uh, must have been 15 years ago, uh, he took a job at U.S. Foods, so he, he became a food salesman. He'd go to restaurants and sell them foods. New job for him. He had a buddy who kind of ran the sales organization for hmm. U.S. Foods in Kansas City. And so he took that job, and uh, now he's manages a team in the office. He decided the sales role after doing it for about 10 years was – he got burnout on it, I think. But yeah, mm. so I kind of if you know if if I look at my parents and how that impacted me growing up, as far as looking at their work, um, which I think is kind of what your what the question was. My my dad 
worked the corporate jobs and and was very focused on wasn't focused on career or advancement in his career um but was focused more on family and making sure that he was at everything he would expense his career he would expense his career for family like that was just what he would do mm. my mom while she was also very present and focused on family was much more career driven um she was a CNO at chief nursing officer at Centerpoint Medical Center when they opened that hospital. It's a large hospital in Independence, Missouri. Wow. And then she worked at, um, I can't remember the name of the hospital. It's in Warrensburg, the, the hospital in Warrensburg. She became the CEO there for several years. Um, then she went to Cerner after that, and she's been in Cerner in a director-type role for a while. So she is very much more career-driven. Um, than my dad growing up. And I think I, uh, when I think about it, I've thought about this before, actually. I got a little bit of both of them, and and, mm-hmm. and and I think it's maybe the best of both because I really don't, yeah, I want to do the best with what God has given me yeah. as far as from a career and talents and skills perspective. But my primary ministry, if you will, is at home. I want to, if, if I succeed go to the moon and back in my career, but I fail at home, I think I failed. And that's really for me, I have to make that kind of balance work, but I focus, I tend to focus more on family than career. If, you know, if you get down to it, that's such a tough endeavor, isn't it? Yes. I I personally struggle with that a lot. I mean, a lot. Yeah. Even when I'm home, I'm thinking about work. I'm sometimes working. Yep. Okay, maybe not sometimes, a yeah, lot of times yeah. working. And it's such a good reminder that you provide of I mean if, I mean we're all going to we're all going to go and while you're on your bed, your deathbed, you're not going to think, "Well, I should have sent that email. <laughs> Wish I would have worked more." <laughs> right. Right. Uh so now uh I have to ask, why did you decide to purchase this business? Okay, so this is going to, we're going to go on a little journey here because it's going to go back a little bit. Um, So I started out in the financial services industry Mm, out of mm -hmm, college, mm -hmm. got my degree in financial management and went into that world. Kind of climbing the career ladder, if you will, of trying to become a portfolio manager uh, on a mutual fund. So that was kind of the career goal early on. So I went through the paces to try to do that. And um, ultimately ended up at a, a firm doing that, managing portfolios, and uh, was enjoying the work that I was doing and challenged, um, got to look at tons of different businesses. Now, these are publicly traded companies that were for sale. But I started learning about this concept called biblically responsible investing. And mm. it's, it's got different names like faith-driven investing, um, and ethically ethical investing there's all kinds of names out there for it but the term for it at the time when i learned about it was biblically responsible investing and what it meant or what it was was this way to it starts with this foundational principle that god owns everything so the earth is the lord's and everything in it god owns it all so if we start with that foundation now we're looking at okay so this money, this capital, this wealth that is in my hands is not mine, it's the Lord's. Okay, so 
now when I invest it, when I go out and buy a share of a stock, now that is an ownership position in a company. So I'm using God's money to buy shares of a company, an ownership stake in a company. What does that company do? And is it harming people for the sake of profit? Are are we harming the very people God calls us to love with the money that he's entrusted to our care? This was like revelatory for me at the time. I was just blown away. And so God spoke to me through that period. And ultimately, I became a reluctant entrepreneur is what I call it, where <laughs> I didn't know anybody who was doing this type of investing in Kansas City, but I felt a deep conviction. And so at that point, God kept using the phrase, why not, to convict me to go out and start a, a firm that did that. Hmm. And so um, that would have been seven years ago, eight years ago, that I started a firm that was doing biblically responsible investing. And then about two years into that, I met an advisor in Kansas City who was looking for biblically responsible investing for his practice, but mm. couldn't find a good way to implement it. And so we got our heads together and we created a a platform or a, another business basically where we built these types of portfolios that we could then basically provide to advisors. So wherever mm. they, so, so we have several advisors, um, I'd say. So this would be like an add on to their current business. Yeah. So, so no, it would be or something replacing. they would implement in their business. So a lot of advisors, this is maybe I should back up. A lot of financial advisors don't actually manage their own investments. Sure. They outsource yeah. that function to a third party. Right, right, right. So we would just <clears throat> sit on the platform and be the portfolio manager that they outsource to um, if they want these kind of like biblically responsible or faith-driven type of portfolios in their mm -hmm. practice. And um, we've just seen an explosion of demand for that kind of thing. As people become more and more uh, advisors, specifically become more and more educated about it, um, and there's been a, an explosion of products and stuff to, that have come to the market to where we can build really high quality institutional grade portfolios. So, again, that's my background. So we built this business um, doing that. So I had my own financial planning business. Mm -hmm. Then I had this uh, portfolio management business. These are mm -hmm. two separate businesses. Um, so the first one's more customer facing, the other one's more behind the scenes and you're yeah. actually managing them. Yes. So I would say the basis. first one is like a direct to consumer type business. Right, right. And the second one's a business to business, hmm. B2B. So, um, so that, so what I ended up doing was kind of moving all of my customers or clients under my customer facing side to, um, under my partner, he, my business partner owned a, um, I'll back up. Bright Portfolios is the name of the B2B business. Right, right. Okay. So my business partner in Bright Portfolios also owned a registered investment advisory firm where he had a lot of clients through there mm -hmm. and had a whole business and process built around that. Yep. I was a solo practitioner with my financial like planning business. So I ended up moving all those people under his registered investment advisory firm so I no longer had that business on my own, mm -hmm. and we were 50-50 in bright portfolios. And so that uh, piece of it was where I was spending most of my time. But, you know, the way that we're building portfolios, um, I had some extra time. I just didn't – I had some time. I wasn't – I was sitting there kind of figuring out, God, what do you have next for me? And um, 
How long is, sorry, how long does it take to, what is the time requirement on a day-to-day basis to, for example, manage a portfolio? Depends on how deep. So here's, here's the way we do it and why it doesn't take as much time. We manage the portfolio using mutual funds and ETFs. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're the mutual fund manager and the ETF manager is the one that's actually going out and doing the individual research on the individual stocks. Right. So they got to know their companies really well. So then you're taking those mutual funds and ETFs and you're vetting basically the company who's putting all those together. And if they're vouching for them, or obviously you probably look at the companies too. We, we do, we screen through the entire thing, but we want values alignment. So if this mutual fund manager, ETF manager aligns with the same values and we trust their process, Mm -hmm. now we just have to, piece together the portfolio and that's a matter of just saying okay you guys have a really good you know, mid cap offering that we can slot into our portfolios and so we we kind of pick and choose the best of each different manager to slot into the portfolio to make up the kind of best in class portfolio if you will so are there any large cap companies that you would put in any of your portfolios yeah yep so just just generally speaking uh, if you were to screen the S&P 500, which is the 500 yep. largest companies in the U.S., um, you would get a little less than half of them would come through our screens. Hmm. So th- so those are kind of what we would call investable. Um, and what are the basic, just what's the overview of your requirements? Yeah, so we have this, um, oh gosh, you're putting me on the spot here. Or even a couple. You don't have to get Yeah, we just came up with a, a really cool framework, and it's called the value framework. Um, valuing the dignity of all people. Um, you know, I, I'm going to have to – I'll just have to give you some screens that we run, but but that's kind of how we – the value framework is how we think of it. Yeah. Tactically, screening-wise, some of the screens we put in place, we just don't invest in companies that are involved in any addictive behavior. So whether it's gambling – Tobacco, Starbucks. Yeah, yeah they they won't come through the screens for many reasons. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so but Starbucks is uh, no that that's a you know I I've heard somebody say I can't remember who told me this but oh yeah you're drinking coffee the acceptable Christian drug. Oh my wow! <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a little truth in uh, that. I funny. have to say yeah. that's uh, that's pretty yeah. pretty good. So anyway. Um, so like any any type of addictive behavior, we just we screen it out because we don't want to, not that like, hey, if you want to go play a game of cards with your friends and put twenty dollars on the line, cool. But literally casinos and places that make money from people who gamble, they depend on people's addictions. Sure. So yeah. there have been studies done on this type of stuff, like eight, over 80% of their profits come from addicts. Mm. And, and it's just sad. And I would not want to, I, I don't feel like God has called us to own businesses that harm others for the sake of profit. I mean, isn't that the, what the Bible says? Right. right. So we look at that and we just say, no, we're not going to be involved in that. Hmm. Um, we look at you know anything to do with abortion, whether it's uh, manufacturing abortive fashions or uh, tools used in abortive mm. procedures or giving to Planned Parenthood, things like that. We just, mm. we screen those companies out. Um, Seems and, like a lot of companies support Planned Parenthood. Yep. Yep. 
there's a lot of political pressure to do so. So what you'll find in biblically responsible investing is that it's our, once you go up the size spectrum, so the bigger companies feel the political pressure. And so they're giving to so many different things that they usually don't come through the screens. Once you get down to like mid caps and small caps, smaller companies, most of them come through our screens because they don't feel, they don't have that political pressure. Well, I mean, that makes sense, right? The bigger, the bigger you are, the more eyes on you and obviously the more pressure, but even Warren Buffett, he said, I remember that if he were to invest for his wife's retirement, he would just put it all into a, mm-hmm. I think he said all fund and yeah. all fund or yeah. even S and P 500. Yeah. I remember he talks a lot about S and P 500 low cost ETFs Yeah, and just not looking at it. Right. So maybe, I mean, that's the truth of that, but just cut half of them out and then yeah. start there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's when we build our models, we take cost into account, but you get what you pay for too. Cause if you have a really good active mutual fund manager mm-hmm. that adds value, if if they add five percent of value per year and you have to pay for three percent a year, I mean, it's worth it. Now none of them are paying right. None of them are charging that. It's like one percent is generally what they're charging. So if they're, if because I've heard many different things with this, but the general consensus usually is stay away from mutual funds because mm-hmm. of the fee mm-hmm. and stick to the low cost ETF. But you're saying that the fee will be worth it with mutual funds because of the performance of the actual manager. If it's a good manager, that's the caveat. So that's where you guys come in and vet these managers. Yes, yeah. So we have to we have to vet the managers, and really, we only use two mutual funds in our models, and we use seven or eight ETFs. So mm. we do use a mix, and it depends on the manager. It depends on what they do, but mm. but for the most part, yeah, we it, it comes back to what is investing. What is investing? Are you investing in this nebulous stock market that right. moves around on a whim? I call it the um, the global casino. Right. Right. So, or are you investing in businesses? Hmm. And that's the difference. If you view it as investing in businesses and you might have a manager who has some sort of information advantage in a certain industry or sector hmm. uh, and you feel good about that and you feel good about their process then yeah, it's okay to allocate some capital to that manager. If you think they have the ability to outperform based on their information advantage, it's because they're, they're looking at the businesses and saying, why is this business priced the way it is? Is there mispricing here? Are we able to get this business cheaper than what, you know, because Benjamin Graham, I don't know. He's the mentor to Warren Buffett. And Mm. you go back and read some of his books and stuff. And it's so interesting. He looks at the market And he said, pretend like it's just a manic depressive person that comes to you every single day. You own a business, an operating business, okay? And this manic depressive comes to your door every day and says, hey, I'm willing to buy shares of your business for this much money. Or I'm willing to sell you shares. You know, I I can sell you more shares for this much money or whatever, whatever he's coming at you with that day. Uh, You would be best advised to ignore him most days and just focus on the operating results of your business. Right. But there may come a day where he's either so manic that he's so excited that he's offering you a price you can't refuse. And mm-hmm. so you need to sell. Or there may come a day when he's wanting to s- sell you shares at a price that 
this business is worth way more than this. Why would you do Because he's depressed. So the, the sky is falling everywhere else. He's scared. And, and so you, you would buy. So you, you have to look at it that way. It's you, you're owning operating businesses and the market's going to give you a price every single day on those businesses. And it's up to you to decide, is it smart to hold, right. buy or sell? Right. And you just have to make those decisions based on your knowledge of the underlying business. Hmm. So that's how I look at investing. Mm-hmm. That's how a lot of mutual fund managers look at investing. Um, but a lot of people who try to play the market, they don't look at investing that way. What's the what's the statistics on that? I've read this before. It's like ninety five percent of them can't beat the market. Yeah, day I, it's, it's something like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's 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 probably higher if we're talking about day traders. I mean that's it's a that's tough to be good at that over a long period of time. Right. You could be good for a year, even yeah. two years, right. but for 10 years. Right. And then would you say that the uh, day traders in or closer to I mean, New York where everything's happening, like if they're closer to the data, do they have an advantage? Wall there's, there's this concept called high frequency trading. And these guys, I mean, they make money on like these little tiny pennies on the dollar, uh, kind of difference between the bid and the ask. And so there's like a technology advantage for that to be closer there, but no, otherwise I think just like Buffett's in Omaha, right? I mean, it, it actually, I think it, if you think about business from, or if you think about investing from the perspective of a business owner, you're probably better off being further away from those financial centers, in my opinion. Less uh, influence. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So going back, so then you um, started this business, which, by the way, I almost forgot. What do you, what fee do you guys charge for Brett portfolios? Uh, so we're on different platforms, and so usually our fee is twenty basis points, so point two percent. is what we charge for that. Um, but then you know, depending on what platform we're on, the the platform might have a fee that the advisor. So the advisor's paying this, so we're only available through advisors. Mm. You know, so it's B2B. I see, I see. So someone, let's say you've got, you know, you go to your advisor and say, hey, I really want to invest. I've had this conversation with people before. I really want to invest. I've been convicted about biblically responsible investing. I want to invest that way. Uh, Your advisor may or may not have an option available. Most don't. And so those advisors will sometimes contact us and say, hey, I've got some clients expressing interest. Can you make your portfolios available on our platform? And then we have to go through the B2B process with their platform to see if we can get on there. Um, and so it's through advisors, and we're only available on four platforms right now. And each platform has hundreds of advisors. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of ways to kind of get you know distribution for these types of portfolios. Uh, but it is pretty like, you know. Just anybody off the street couldn't go get our portfolios unless they were going through one of those advisors. So when you say platform, are you talking like Edward Jones and sort of, yeah, there's, so again, these, a lot of advisors outsource their, uh, investment management function. I see. They also outsource a lot of the back office stuff. Mm. So there are these platforms out there called turnkey asset management providers or platforms. Wow. And so these are TAMPs in, in the financial world and, they provide the entire technology, billing, all the back office functions that an advisory office would need. Yep. These guys provide all that. Makes and sense. so what we do is we just bolt, they have several portfolio options available on their menu 
we just bolt ours on to the menu. We're just we're just another option on the menu. Hmm. And so advisors on their platform to to that platform, it's saying, hey, we now have a biblically responsible investing option they can promote to all their advisors, and it's a value add for them to add us to their platform because some of their advisors may be asking for that. So. So that's how we kind of get on these platforms is in, in, through kind of personal relationships or through different avenues that kind of come up in conversations with these providers. What a great idea. So after um, setting up Bright Portfolios, what, was, what would happen after that? Okay. So, yeah, we were getting to how, what, why in the world did I purchase an yeah. industrial parts right. business? Yeah. And you're a financial, I mean, you're right. a finance I mean, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems weird, but really now that you, I think maybe a little more background on, you have more background on the biblically responsible investing aspect. Yep. Um, so that informed this idea of buying a business. And so I'd been hearing some people talk about buying a business and what that looked like and, I'd followed a couple people who had done that, followed kind of their journey of doing it mm-hmm. and just kind of uh, talked to them. And and so I just learning from their experience, um, it seemed like a fantastic way to take this idea of biblically responsible investing and put real skin on it. So it's mm. taking this idea of we want to invest in companies that care for people, that really truly value their customers, suppliers, communities, uh, and employees like we want to own those types of companies in our investment portfolio. The problem is you don't have any direct impact on that. You can't make changes. Like there's a management team in place. You just have to trust that they're going to continue to do that or hope they do. Now here is like, let's take this like kind of theory, this idea that we're sort of implementing over here, but let's like make it even more real and Mm -hmm. let's put Mm -hmm. real skin on it. And so that was where I felt God leading was just, buy a business and and you need to work these things out in in the real world and um with with people who you know them you know their families like i you know you're gonna end up meeting these people's families you're gonna end up knowing these people on a deep level that you wouldn't know the workers of you know the companies you invest in in your your investment portfolio right so that was uh an exciting prospect for me because I really do believe that business exists to serve people. Yep. And that's why we're here. I don't know, it's why you do what you do every day. You mm-hmm. know, it's why mm-hmm. I enjoy the work that I do is because I get to, um, in some small way, serve some people in our community. And I think a small business touches so many lives, and that's what's exciting to me about it. So you have zero background in industrial parts and that's services. That's correct. So then <laughs> what exactly about this business Made you pull the trigger. So it took about two to two and a half years looking at businesses. Wow. I looked at several, um, got close on a couple, made a couple offers, got close, and just for whatever reason, a couple just didn't work out for different reasons. And so continued looking. Uh, This one came along, and uh, initially me and the owner really hit it off. And we still have a wonderful, in fact, I had lunch with him right before coming here. We just have a great relationship. We have lunch once a month. Um, he's called me his, his brother from another mother. Like huh. he's 65. I'm you know 37. Like we're not generationally, we're in totally different generations, but uh, we are like brothers. Like we just, we enjoy uh, 
the work. We enjoy the people. And he built a wonderful business where he cared for people. Hmm. And uh, that was very evident throughout the process. The kinds of stuff he did, most people don't do. Like the day before we closed on the business, he went and got the, the work truck serviced. He got it cleaned. He got all these things, and that was not part of the agreement. He didn't have to do any of that. Like he just chose because wow. he wanted to leave it better than he found it. He wanted to make sure, you know, that it was like that's just classy. Yes, that's a classy. He's a classy guy, classy gentleman, right there. He is, and so that's. I mean, I don't think of a. I can't think of a better way to describe him. I mean, he really is. So I've loved working with him. To me, in these types of things, that that fit is very important. Just mm. kind of, you this is not just a business transaction to me. It's not just that to him. This is a relationship. Mm. And so we want to continue that relationship and it's been wonderful. So that was one of the big things. It was me and him just hitting it off from mm-hmm. the very beginning. Mm-hmm. It was very different from any other kind of buyer seller call that I ever had with any of the other sellers that were looking to sell. Mm. So that was a big part. And then just once I learned more and more about the business um, I loved how the business is very relational. So the service that we provide, we have really good relationships with our customers. That was a big deal to him. And that's what carries that business forward. I mean, that's, I, I love how it's in an industry or like we talked about before, it's kind of sad, but it also is our opportunity where it, the bar is low, right? right? right. Where these people are, the, our customers are not used to being served well. And so if we can do that, we'll continue to have customers. Um, I loved how it's a very low inventory business. So it's weird, but we don't stock hardly anything at Brown Industrial. So we're a parts company that has no parts. <laughs> so we... Probably just connect the dots. Correct. We, we have a huge list of suppliers and vendors that we've worked with over the years. And we know who to call when one of our customers calls us and says, hey, we need this part. We There's three suppliers off the top of... Not my head, but the people in at Brown, that work at Brown Industrial, they've got three people on the top of their wow. head that they already know we need to call to get these parts. And hmm. and it's in our system, too. I mean, if if they left, we have it in the system. People could look it up, too. So it's been it's been really fun. Uh, kind of it's all learning. And yeah, so one I of bet. the things optim- I'm optimizing for in this whole transaction, because I could have went out and tried to buy a company in the financial services space where I have experience, right? That, that would, would have be made the logical. Most sense. <laughs> uh, if I was optimizing for return on investment, that would have made sense. But I was also wanting to learn. I wanted to learn something new and and kind of personally just grow. And, and so I think we have a unique opportunity as believers. This is what I, I firmly believe to view risk differently. Mm. Um, so this is uh, because what is failure? I, I what is failure? I'll ask you. What do you think of when I say what is failure? I'd say missing an expectation. Okay. I would say most people think uh, their first thought is financial or some sort of what you said in a way, but some sort of financial or public failure, right? Mm. Where they're and. But even missing an expectation, let's take that. Is it painful? Yes, it's painful to miss expectations. But I would argue that I think most people draw closer to God and 
God can strengthen our character more through those times. Mm -hmm. And so if that's the outcome, then is failure really failure? That's, I guess, the point I'm trying to make is we can view risk differently because failure is not failure for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. From a worldly perspective, what failure looks like can be great gain to the believer. So, hmm. Yeah. So when you are, so walk me through, how do you assess risk? Cause you're obviously somebody who is willing to put a lot of money out there for something that you think is going to pan out. So what, what are kind of the basic steps you take with assessing that risk, whether it be purchasing, purchasing property or purchasing a business or investing in a new business or whatever it may be. What do you think? In your, what, what's going on in your head when you do that? Yeah, so there's a couple of things I think about, and and right or wrong, this is just where my brain initially goes, right? One is, if this fails by the world standards, would it be catastrophic to me and my family? Hmm. That's one thing. There's there's this, you know, take risks, but risks that you can survive. Sure, yeah. Uh, and so I think about that. Again, I'm not sure that's the right way to think about it, but that's where, where my brain first Makes goes. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and so that's one thing. The other thing, you know, I'm, I, I understand, I think there's, there's an extreme amount of privilege as well that I, I'm coming from here because I know for a fact I have so much family support that if everything fell apart, I'm not, I know my family is not going to be sleeping on the street, right? And not mm. everybody can say that, you know, mm. when they take risks. Mm -hmm. So, I guess take what I say with a grain of salt because that is very true in my situation that I know we've got plenty of family who would take us in if <laughs> if the wheels completely fell off, right? right? You know, so um, the, again, just kind of making the most of what God has entrusted to us mm -hmm. and understanding that, that that privilege is there and trying to make the most of that uh, for the kingdom of God, that's what I— what I think my mandate is, is to go out and make the most of what God has entrusted to my care for his glory and his kingdom. So, mm. so is there anything you guys are doing that would be specifically related to furthering God's kingdom in uh, Brown and industrial? Yeah. So I think about this very differently maybe than a lot of people do, but um, I actually think business in general is a way to uh, bring about the kingdom. Sure. So, you know, actually, when I went out to search for a business, I kind of spun up a little LLC that was going to be the purchasing entity, and I called it Avalone. And Avalone was a mashup of two Hebrew words. One is Avodah, which means it, the Hebrew words are kind of fun because they have multiple meanings kind of wrapped into one word. And so Avodah means work, service, and worship. It's very interesting, those three things in one word, Right. We don't usually think of worship when we think about our work. Right. So right. it's it's a very interesting word. I love that word uh, because I think work is worship when yes. looked at. Right. So, but the other is shalom. And we kind of know that as kind of the greeting, like shalom, shalom, hey. Uh, but it means peace, flourishing, and delight. And so mm. I love this idea that when viewed properly, our work can be a means of bringing about flourishing and delight mm -hmm. in our communities as we work as if working to the Lord um, and serving others, then that brings about flourishing in our communities. So that's how I view business and the, the work that we do. So 
practically speaking, I think it makes sense to start with the employees because uh, everything kind of flows from there. So yep. if we take really good care of our people, uh, this kind of virtuous cycle kind of happens. Take really good care of people in whatever way you see fit within your business, right? Uh, some businesses do that differently, but um, take good care of people. They take good care of the customers, yep. and then the customers take good care of the company. This just simple virtuous cycle that happens, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. the company can continue to take good care of the employees. Like So that's kind of how I simply, in my mind, kind of think about doing it. Um, and so some practical things that at Brown that we've done, um, I've made sure everybody is paid. We've, we've changed some pay stuff with Brown, with, with people in Brown to make sure people are paid, uh, not that they were paid unfairly, but, um, you know, partly you're coming in as a new guy and none of these people know you. Yeah. And so, um, you don't know who's going to stay, who's going to go. You start to get to know people and you start to see how much they're paid, understand. And so I, I just kind of felt like there were some, uh, the scales weren't right a little bit. So made some changes there to make sure people were paid appropriately. Um, and there's uh, Ryan who was in Brown. So I'll back up real quick. I was planning to run Brown industrial for like three to five years as the main operator. Right. And then maybe bring in somebody to operate it and maybe go buy another business. Like in my mind, that was the plan. That was kind of the vision. God had somebody in the business. His name's Ryan who wanted to buy and run the business. Mm. And so over time I learned that about Ryan. We got to talking and um, so Ryan is now a, it's not official yet, but we're acting as if, and we'll make it official this year. He is a part owner of the business Mm -hmm. and 50, 50 is what we're talking. And then, uh, he is, his pay is commensurate as with someone who is running the day to day of the business. So we bumped up his pay quite a bit and made sure he was, you know, invested in the business, uh, cause that's what he wanted. And I came into this with open hands, like, Lord, this is my. This is what I think this will look like, but it's yours. It's not mine. So, uh, so the fact that Ryan was there and wanted to be a part of it, and I, to me, that was God saying, "You said you've got open hands. Let's see." And so, uh, providing him with a path to be able to be an owner without really a buy-in uh, was really, really fun for us to kind of talk through and work through. And we're still working out details, but that's been just a fun way to bless him. And now he's a part of other stuff that might come down the road too. So, um, so it's, it's just been a blast to kind of get to invest in people over the last, it's been about a year and a half since I bought the business. So the first year you're really active in the business, right? Correct. Yeah. And that was by design. So I, I, I mean, I thought it would be longer, but I was active in the business for the first 10 months. Day to day, I was in the business. I was learning the ropes. I learned. I I had to transition the business from the previous owner, and I knew I wanted to do that. I wanted to be involved in the day to day. To again, I was optimizing for learning, and so I wanted to be able to learn. I wanted to kind of understand how this business works. So I did it for ten months. Uh, it so so I at the end of so about at the end of. Let's call it eight months. I bought the business June 1st of 2021. 
by December of that year, I had learned, me and Ryan had begun those conversations where, listen, you want to run the day-to-day and I want you to run the day. Like, I don't want to run the day-to-day of this forever. That was never the plan. This just accelerates things, but good, let's figure this out. And so by April, we had worked it out to where he's now running the day-to-day of the business. I moved my office from the business to my home office. Mm -hmm. And now I just take care of some administrative kind of functions within the business, but let Ryan kind of take care of the day-to-day. So you found a win-win. Yes. For both of you. And it's that's what's fun, right? When you can find win-wins that totally bless people, you know, it's just like, uh, there's there's nothing better, and that to me is that bringing about shalom within our communities is is finding those situations and really like leaning into them. You mm. know, so I, I'm curious. So when you purchased the business, does that did that include property? No, no. So the building wasn't included. So you're leasing still. Yep. The business is leasing now. Yep. So then you're really purchasing the brand, and you're purchasing the buying habits mm-hmm. of their current customers book of business basically right customer relationships you could say um, you, you know the the scary thing about it was that Andy the guy I bought it from was a very relational guy and he was the face of the business interesting so that's very interesting the the thought or the the fear I guess that I sometimes had going into it once Andy's gone, are these people going to stop buying because yeah, so what they buy from Andy? Right. Do they buy from Brown or do they buy from Andy? So how what that transition look like? So, yeah. So that was interesting. <laughs> I knew I was not the guy to be the face of the business. I was not the guy to go. Why did you know that? Uh, Cause or that's not my skill set. I just know that's not my skill set. <laughs> and uh, in, in all along, even before having these conversations with Ryan, I knew that was his skill set and Andy mm, knew that was his wow, skill set. That's great. And so he was going to be the face and the sales guy anyway. Um, and so he, from the beginning, I went and met all the customers with Andy, but then we just said, Hey, uh, Andy's, we, we announced Andy's selling the business. This has been, he's a new owner, but your new point of contact will come around. I'll come around. Andy said, I'll come around with you uh, next week or whatever. And, and you'll meet Ryan. And he'll be your new point of contact with Brown. So we positioned it that way to where I met everybody, but I'm not the face, the sales guy. The, I'm, I'm just kind of the owner in the background. Well, it makes sense because if you don't want to be in the day-to-day, it <clears throat> doesn't really make sense to be the, right. the face. Right. Uh, how many employees? There are nine people in the business and then me. So, so how do you juggle? What do you have, uh, two businesses now? Yeah, just two. 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 Yeah, we're under contract on another one. I was going to ask you that too, but before we get into that, how do you juggle both? Like, how do you manage both and then also keep your family and home as the top priority? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't, I'm not real strict about it, but I, I schedule my time mm-hmm. and I block time out for my family and during the day. Uh, so working from home is a huge blessing. I love it. Some people hate it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I am all for it if if you can do it, right? Some businesses, it just there's no way to work from no. home, right? No. So you you know that here. Right, right. You teach live classes, right? Like yeah, somebody <laughs> has to be here to teach them. Hold on, guys. I got to right. go. Uh, I got to go tend to my son. I'll right. be back for class. <laughs> uh, so, 
But I love the fact that, you know, I could be going hard at work in my office. Yeah. And then five minutes later, I could be rolling around the floor with my kids. Like, you know, that's and, – and I love those spontaneous little breaks in the day that happen. Um, so you can get right back into work though after that. I feel okay doing – I don't – so I'm not in a position where I'm doing a lot of like creative work. Sure. Or I'm not doing a lot of that kind of stuff. So there's not like a – I I don't feel the need for like some creative flows date that needs to happen where I have to get into real deep. Like I know there's this deep work and I try to block off time to where my blocks are like, if I'm trying to do something that requires more of my attention, yeah, uh, I try to block off an hour and a half at least for that mm-hmm. um, just to get me enough time. But, but I welcome the kind of interruptions that happen throughout the day, which is, I don't know. I don't think most people probably do, but again, it kind of goes back to what am I going to regret? You know, am I going to regret yelling at my kids for coming in while I'm trying to do some piece of work that may not even have any internal value? Or (laughs) am I going to regret not playing with them? That is such a hard thing to manage because I'm so guilty of this. I'm in the middle of like really high intensity, like mind focused work. Yeah. And then my son comes in and hits me. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. I got to finish I'm this. I'm guilty too. Two hours later. The same thing sometimes. <laughs> two hours later, he's off on his own. I yep. missed the opportunity. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I definitely can uh, get on the board of the guilt with that. So tell me about this new business or the next business. Yeah. So I can't share a whole lot because sure. of, because yep. of confidentiality yep. stuff, yep. but, uh, but yeah, we're looking at an electrical parts business. That's kind of, um, it would operate separately of Brown, mm-hmm. but it would be, it's, it's amazing how many things are similar. Um, just the customer relationship piece, the, how they've grown over time. Is there inventory? There is inventory. Wow. So that's the big difference. That's the big difference. They're almost identical in almost every way, except for this place has quite a bit of inventory. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a little bit of part of their value proposition. So um, generally, though, the customer value proposition is very similar. They sell to a little bit of a different customer set than we do. So there might be opportunity to kind of um, cross-sell or sure. kind of have some revenue synergies, you know, if you will, on, on something like that. But we're not going into it counting on something like that. Um, it's just a very interesting business and uh, very close to what we already do that it makes sense. And initially, I this business came along. We got a email from a business broker saying, hey, this business for sale, we thought you guys might be interested, you know, given what you do. And I looked at it, and we had so much other stuff. We're trying to buy the building for Brown Industrial Park. Ah, okay. We got other stuff going on, and it just seemed like timing. Wait, you're trying to build buy the building right now? We're we're on yeah we're under contract on our building for Brown Industrial, but with this new deal we have under contract, we've kind of pushed that. We've asked the building owner if he's willing to push it, and he mm. is. So. That's on hopefully the back you're, burner. Hopefully you're getting a good rate. Yeah, right I know, now. right? Yeah. Goodness, it's scary. It's it's tough. That scares me even so, about that. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, it's it's kind of you kind of go back and forth in your brain, like, okay, so if I don't buy the building, he's gonna sell it. 
and then who's right. going to buy it? And are it's they going to jack our miss, rent? You miss the opportunity. Right. Right, right, right. And, and what, so would I mean, we rather... refinance anyways. Right. Would we rather kind of control our costs in this building right. or or is somebody else going to come in and jack our rent costs? Either way, I mean, just buying property, yeah. you're, in the long run, you're always going to be ahead. Even right. if the rate's super high. Right. Especially all... if we're paying rent on it, right? Right. Already. Yeah. So I think... Yeah, we're, we've decided to do it. It's just a matter of timing now with this other thing happening. But but with all that, when the broker sent this thing along, I we just said, it looks great, but no thanks. I think this is too too much for us to chew at this time. Like we're, We'd be biting off more than we can chew. And uh, so I'll let it sit. And then I can't remember if it was my brother-in-law or somebody. My brother-in-law is interested in buying a business as well and kind of has talked to me about it. And he sent that one to me and he was like, have you guys looked at this? And, uh, so it just made me take a second look. It made me kind of think harder about it. And so like, okay, we'll schedule a call. We'll, we'll just, here's, here's how I kind of approach these things. Lord, I'm going to take the next step. I think you're calling me to take. And then if you want me to keep going, just don't put up a red light. If I see Mm. a red light, if there's something where I feel the Holy spirit saying, just stop, then it's stop. But, until then, just keep taking that next step. I love how specific that prayer was because it says, you said, um, just I'll keep going until you give me a red flag. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. And so that's because you can get overwhelmed when you think about like all the stuff that has to be done and all the things that go into it. And yeah. and like it, it could cause paralysis. So it's kind of like we'll take the next step. And it's it's so it's it's much less overwhelming for me to think about. It's just like. I'm going to follow the Lord through this. I'm not going to think about all the things that I think I have to do Mm -hmm. because that's just worry for worry's sake. Like a lot of this may not come true, right? So why worry about something that may never come true? Just take the next step. And then if the Lord says stop, we'll stop. If he he doesn't, we'll just keep taking that next step. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what's happened throughout this process is we just haven't seen the red light yet. Not that it can't still come, but, uh, but yeah, once I looked at it deeper and, had a call with the sellers. Again, that was just one of those, me and Ryan had a call with the sellers. So bringing him in on this oh, one now, yep. in this journey, uh, again, just as a way to kind of bless him. And and he's thinking differently about business now than he was before. Like mm. He's thinking a lot. It's just fun. So he's, after we got off the call with them, he was so excited. I thought it was a great call. Like it was just uh yeah, based on it was weird. The things they said on that call were almost like it's almost like they listened to a tr- or read a transcript of the first call I had with Andy Brown of Brown Industrial because they said a lot of the same exact wow. things. So when you when you're looking at a business, how much do the financials, so the profit loss and then the balance sheet, how much percent of that is weighed into your decision compared to maybe their potential, the brand, maybe in your head, the vision of how much you could grow it once you take control of it? I would say the financials, maybe not the most important, but they're the majority of what I look at. Mm. So they're probably... What track record are you looking Like how many years do you want to see a good performance for the financials? So I like to see a company that's been in business for at least 10 years uh, or more, right? Um, Why is that? There's just some longevity to it. There's, they've proven that, you know, there's some yep. value proposition they have that yep. has lasted for at least 10 years. Um, 
And then I like to see stable and steady revenue and cash flow. So mm. those are the things that I, you know, and there's lots of goes into that, but just generally speaking, I'm not looking for some high growing uh, companies that grow fast. Uh, sometimes, well, almost in every company that grows fast, things break. Right. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yes. So we're, it's like a car, right? Yeah. You're trying to really push it hard and yes. hard and it's going fast and fast, but then the engine blows. Yes. Cause you're pushing it too hard. Right. And so hmm. we're looking for slow and steady and hmm. companies that spit out some good cash flow. Um, cause that's, that's something that a bank will look at and lend on. Right. Um, and that's something that, you know, obviously we're going to be looking at the cash flow of the business because, the way I think about it is this think because a lot of people like to think of scale. Okay. Scale's great. Here's what's interesting. I think so there's a corner bait shop by a lake, right? And, and this is not for me. This is from some other, I'm just reusing something I've heard, but this is so resonates with me. Corner bait shop. There's no way they can, that the, their value proposition is that there's a lake next to them. Right. <laughs> yes, yes. So they, they can't scale that. Like right, you can't right. have 50 locations around the lake. <laughs> Let's go build a lake right. over here next to quick trip. So, I mean, you could try to get locations, but, but generally speaking, like that's, they're just going to spit off a little bit of cash flow every year. Yep. And that's just what they're going to do. They're not going to grow. Sure. Uh, unless that lake is growing or sometime, but generally speaking, it's going to be a stable business that spits off cash flow. They can't scale. Lots of people hate those. I don't mind them because here's why. Because that business uh, can generate some cash flow. And then if you, you're someone like me who thinks about all these different types of businesses, you don't have to scale that business. You can take that cash flow and go buy potentially another business with that mm. cash flow. And you kind of grow that way and diversify your risk a little bit. And you don't have to – and you're – it's interesting because you're looking at businesses that other people aren't looking at because people don't like them. And so boring is good. Uh, steady, stable, steady cash flow is good. Like all mm. these types of things that, you know, I've heard somebody say it this way. <laughs> Basically, if you went up to someone at a cocktail party and they asked you what you did, if you're embarrassed to say it, that means it's probably a good business. <laughs> There's so much truth in that. Yeah, I sell uh, toilet cakes. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but I also have fifty percent margin. Yes, exactly. <laughs> See, so it's 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 a funny way to look at it, but just generally speaking, like small, steady cash flow is not a bad thing. Sure. So, up until now, what's been the most painful lesson you've had to learn as an entrepreneur? First one that comes to mind. I don't know if it's painful, but just generally speaking, I used to set goals and have these visions of the, and. and Here's the deal. My visions have never become a reality. <laughs> and so I stopped. Uh, it's, it's Wait, that, why is that? Why are they not, I, I must are not they too big? I must not be very good at this vision <laughs> thing. No, I just think I think of things one way and God has different plans. Yeah, and so like, I can tell you when I started, when I was that reluctant entrepreneur who started th my, my little biblically responsible investing shop, mm -hmm. I thought, my vision long term was to build up a, a nice client base and and work with really awesome families that cared about you know being a good steward and and doing that in the long run. And I'm so far from that now, but I'm having a blast. And so like God takes our little visions that at least mine and he makes them so much better and more suited to who we are. So I just 
I'm now convinced that I just need to do what I said before. Just take that next step, keep following the Lord in that next step, and let Him kind of lead the way and not mm. not try to dictate what's going to happen by these visions and driving toward these visions. Because my personality is if I have a vision or a goal in front of me, I'm going to be blinded to everything happening around me Oh my goodness! because I need yes. to hit that, whatever that yep. is. Kind of like yep. you said, failure is not meeting an expectation. Mm-hmm. And I feel that when I have that in front of me, not to say that people who set goals or do that, it's not, it's just not right for me because I am so focused on that thing yes. that I can't like enjoy life along the way. Yep. So that's, I think I've learned that about myself over time through this entrepreneurial journey. Amen yeah. to that. So uh, other than the Bible, what's the first book that comes to mind that's been most impactful for your journey up until today? Mm. Can I give you two? Sure. Is that allowed? Of course. So one of my favorite books is Every Good Endeavor by mm. Tim Keller. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about how we can connect our work to God's work, no matter what we do. And it's a really, really good book that really it uses scripture to make the point that we can love that we can, like we talked about before that work is worship. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that, that book was instrumental because back before I just, I did this thing that every kind of Christian business person, entrepreneur does when I was in the business world and working in corporate world, I was like, am I doing what God wants me to do or do I need to quit my job and go into vocational ministry, be a pastor, a missionary (laughs) or something? And uh, that book was instrumental in helping me change my kind of frame of mind around that. So There's almost a little guilt sometimes. I mean, I'm just speaking for my, for me is that I'm not a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. But you are. That's what it says. But we are Monday through Saturday. Yes. Or Monday through Friday because there's, there's, you know. Right. And then we have our actual pastors on Saturday and Sunday. Yes. Yes. Your your work is a ministry and and, and it's just a matter of changing your mindset to view your work as a service to others. That can, you can have the most menial, boring job in the world. Mm -hmm. But if you view what you do as truly serving and loving your neighbor, it can invigorate that work. So I just, I think it's a great book for helping people kind of connect those dots. Hmm. Um, Second book. Second one is called salvaged. Um, And it's a book. It's really not well known, but it's a book about uh, basically this guy who grew up on his dad owned a junkyard and he kind of took it over as he got older, but all the business lessons he's learned through life and, it's just it's just a fun book to read because he kind of challenges some some you know widely held business notions so to speak uh, you know like Jim Collins good to great yeah. He's, he talks about getting the right people uh, in the right, in the right seats. seats on yep. your bus and all the stuff and and that's great this guy basically says I'm I'm not saying that's wrong but what if our our job should be to take like really truly care for the people that are already on our bus. Oh. Goodness, that's and so good. We should be more concerned about those people's flourishing ten years from now than we are about our business results. Mm. Not saying the business doesn't need to make money and profit and all this stuff. He goes into all this, but but basically, shouldn't we be more concerned about the welfare of the people on our bus than yeah? You know? So it goes against, and it does make you think. I'm not saying every. I agree with all of his kind sure. of things, but but it's a great book to just make you think through some things and as an entrepreneur and business leader. So. Oh, yeah. I think you might've gave that to me. Yeah, I probably did. It's one of my favorites. I hand, I buy them in bulk and hand them out. How many books do you read per year? You think 
probably 40 to 60, depending on the year. 40 to 60. Wow. Have you always been a reader? Um, yes. And you were, uh, we didn't even talk about this, but you were a uh, college baseball player too. So you were yeah. a high level athlete. No high level. Yeah. Division two. Yeah. High level. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, there's playing. division three too. Aren't That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, it was fun. I had, I had a blast playing ball. And, and again, it goes back to this though. When I think about the day playing days, it's like, yeah, sure. I miss playing ball. Sure. But what I really miss are the relationships. Like, yeah. And I think everybody else on the team would say the same thing these days. Like the relationships were just so fantastic when you, this is what's cool about what I think relates to business. When you're in the trenches with people and you really like work hard together to achieve something. um, And it's not easy. There's deep and lasting relationships that can be formed in that. And so uh, that's what I miss about baseball, but I get it in, in the business world now. So. So then when you were younger, were you a reader? Because I wasn't. I hated reading. I hated anything with books. Just just wanted to run around and Yeah, ADHD I don't, I don't think I read there. a lot when I was like real, like high school or younger. When did you start? Uh, probably call in college. And what caused that? I can't answer that. I have no idea. <laughs> I remember, so what I was studying corporate rec and wellness, I wanted to be a... Um, rec sports teacher because in high school my rec sports teacher played like all he did was like beat kids in ping pong and pickleball all day so I was like <laughs> that's a good job uh so I was, I was heading toward that and then uh I read my mom handed me a book of uh the total money makeover by Dave Ramsey mm. and so it started me down this path of like budgeting and I got really into it for some reason when I was in Gosh, college I wish I would have yeah well, you know, you don't have much to live on, so you're trying to, like, make the most of it. Yeah, and, you know, those days. So, like, that was really fun for me to try to figure that out. But anyway, that that led me down the finance path after that. So just kind of, I think once I read that book, I probably just started reading a bunch of books on, I did read a lot of, one summer in college, once I was a little further down the road, I read a bunch of books on real estate investing and went out and bought a property in Kansas City and, and wholesaled it. So I just flipped the contract to a rehabber and... I made some money and moved on and thought, Goodness. wow, everything that came together on that, I I'm, I don't even want to try to do that again because I'm not sure it would all come together the same <laughs> way. So, All right, last question before we end this is, do uh, you have a life hack or a daily routine that keeps you focused and productive every day? I would say most days I, I block off time every single morning to spend time alone with God. That's the one thing that I – and. Some mornings I might have a coffee meeting with somebody real early where yeah. I, I have to I do it a little later in the day, but I do not compromise that. You actually put it on your calendar? I put it on my calendar. You just put God on there. I, I put quiet time, but yes, <laughs> it, it is my time alone with God. And, and uh, How long is that? I have it blocked off for an hour and a half, but wow. it's not usually, it's usually about an hour. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I... And, and in a household with kids, yep, that gets a little tricky. Yep. Um, we don't have like a real good room to be like a room. You right. go in and have a quiet time. So I'm sitting on my couch and my kid and I'm reading and, and spending time with God. And my kids might come up and ask me a question or something. And I I tell them, hey, Daddy's spending time alone with God right now. Um, you know, I I can help you, but but can you try to figure something out with ask your brother to help you next time or so. So they kind of, now they know, right? Like when I'm spending time alone with God, try not to interrupt dad. And 
And we've also started implementing a couple weeks ago. Actually, we just started this doing quiet time as a family. So like 20 minutes, the kids and my wife and me of that kind of hour, we're just telling them, hey, you guys need to spend 20 minutes reading. and uh, Not on the screen. Right. Not yeah. on the screen. These are books. And, and then at the end of that 20 minutes, we all share what God's teaching us through his word that day. So. That's awesome. That's, I love that. That's a fun thing to do with your kids. They <laughs> they come up with some cool stuff, and sometimes you have to like redirect them. Well, that's not what, really what he means here. Uh, but you know, it's it's fun. I mean, it's so fun to hear what they have to say and what God's teaching them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I I think that's a great practice for our family. Excellent. Well, I uh, really thank you for doing this, and I think. You for our relationship and friendship. Yeah. I've learned a lot from you. and uh, Same. Uh, thanks again for coming on here. Thanks for having me, man. It's been a blast. 